This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Equity Mind. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. We have our favorite financial advisor joining us in the studio and we're going to pepper him with all, all of our questions. That's it. It is our pleasure to welcome back Charlie Viola. Charlie, welcome. Okay, gents. How are we? Very We're very good. well. Very How are good. you? Yeah, all right. Happy New Year, I guess. Yes. Is yes. it still the New Year? It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and happy new space. It's my first uh, my first venture into your uh, into your new offices. What do you think? Yeah, they're great. Yeah, love yeah, the yeah. Uh, I love the veranda and the yes. view and did stuff. Did we so. did we have you back at the Batuta Studio back in the day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been on the journey with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Three or four years ago, so we recognise that financial advice is expensive, with only ten percent of Australians receiving advice. And throughout two thousand and twenty three, we want to try and do something about that with a series of episodes called Ask the Advisor, where we're going to bring on some of Australia's best advisors, giving you the opportunity to ask them questions. We'll be covering a range of topics, not just all about investing. And it starts today with Charlie. If you do want to ask a question for the uh, advisors coming up throughout the year, the best place to do so will be the Facebook group. Um, So we'll let you know uh, which advisors are coming up, but we are super excited for this episode. If you haven't heard of Charlie before, firstly, go and listen to uh, the previous episodes we've done with him. But uh, he is partner and managing director of wealth uh, at Pitcher Partners, which manages $3.4 billion. Charlie is personally responsible responsible for managing 2.2 billion dollars of funds under management no pressure charlie that's a lot of money it's <laughs> a lot of other people's money it is it is he advises high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals and it's been recognized by barons as the number one advisor in australia in 2018 and number four in 2019 and recognized multiple times as one of the top 50 most influential advisors here in Australia. So plenty of experience. And today, Ren, we're going to be unpacking two sort of key buckets. Firstly, portfolio construction. And then secondly, having a 
chat with Charlie about how he's advising some of the younger clients who are coming through with more smaller amounts of yeah, money. Yeah, yeah, or the children of clients. Yeah. And, and we hear that's a really common question uh, in the Equity Mates community. Someone in the Equity Mates team actually has just had a kid. Congratulations, Simon and Kez. And uh, he set up an investment account for his kids. So it, it's definitely a Big question, and we're excited to hear how Charlie approaches that with his clients. Mm. But we're and, gonna... and Bryce must be close too. Oh, oh, you absolutely nailed it. Listening, don't get any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon by the end of this year there'll be some news. No way. <laughs> <laughs> we've got a business to run. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the business isn't going anywhere, <laughs> but you're you are getting older. <laughs> no, anyway, no. Charlie, we'll take that offline. <laughs> uh, we want to start with portfolio construction because. You know, when uh, risk is higher, having a uh, well-constructed portfolio can be uh, a really important step, uh, an important defensive step in some respects. So I guess let's start at the very beginning. When you're speaking to your clients, what are some of the key principles of portfolio construction? I think I've got a really simple philosophy on this stuff. And I think those the three kind of main principles around constructing any portfolio uh, are around firstly objectives driven. So, you know, what are you actually trying to achieve with the portfolio? Second one is diversity. And the third one is, is asset quality. So, so from an objectives point of view and remembering the context that we're generally putting together portfolios for, you know, high net wealth individuals, generally sort of closer to the end of their working working life, you know, wealthy people still have objectives though. So for us, it's, it's all about understanding what that objective is. So are they trying to generate sufficient revenue over a period of time to meet their future living expenses, you know, the ability to buy bread, milk, rice, race cars, whatever it is, <laughs> is that people spend their money in, on, um, you know. Uh, so we, we're always trying to keep that objective in mind. So if you're a young person, um, you still need to keep the objective in mind in terms of putting your portfolio together. What's the purpose of the money? What's the use case at some point in time? When do you think you're going to need it? And make sure that your asset selection is in the context of what you're actually trying to achieve over, over a period of time. So the second piece is diversity. I'm a big one for diversity. I'm a big one for making sure that you're not generating all of your return uh, the same way and that you're not taking all of the risk, um, all of the same risks with, with all of your money. Um, so I'm a big one for making sure that, you know, when you kind of draw, draw the pie graph, you've got something other than, you know, large cap equities or you've got <laughs> something other than tech or you've got mm. something other than Bitcoin yeah. um, in your in your, your portfolio. But I think the biggest one overall is asset quality. You know, your ability to pick unicorns, to be honest, is going to be limited. Uh, keep the punting for the bookies and for your sports bet account or for your tab account. Buy stuff that has genuine asset quality attached to it. So if you're buying equities, good competitive advantages, good cash flow, great balance sheets, um, you know, good asset backing, etc. If you are, you know, if you've got a, a smaller pot of money, making sure that you're buying good quality portfolios uh, of, of investments and good quality, you know, broad-based ETFs so that you can start to accumulate the wealth over a period of time. So, so be diverse, buy good quality things, try and limit your, your winner picking over it because you just won't. And if you pick <laughs> one, you're not likely to, to pick two. 
and, uh, you know, make sure you're investing based upon your, you know, your long-term or even your medium-term objectives or the purpose of the money. Yeah, I like that. I think when we were discussing uh, you coming and speaking at FinFest uh, in one of your emails, it's just a one-liner and you said, all I want to talk about is buying good quality uh, good quality and buying it often or something yeah. along those lines. Yeah, and it's right. just like, wow, that's just such a simple strategy. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I often say to clients that we have three fundamental things that we want to um, to tick the boxes on in terms of, you know, the assets that we buy. One, we want the assets to be producing revenue for them. We want the assets to be producing income or at least have the ability to generate revenue over a period of time. Secondly, uh, we don't want to blow up the capital. So, you know, we, we don't want to be buying things that have got, the, you know, high risk of impairment. I look at risk very differently to what some people do. Some people look at risk in terms of asset allocation and growth assets and, um, you know, income assets or defensive assets. I don't look at it that way. Um, I, I look at risk in terms of the risk of impairment. So um, not so much the risk of it going up and down, but the risk of it actually turning to dust. You know, I take the view that large cap defensive equities are actually a, a defensive asset. Yeah, they change in value, but they're going to be there tomorrow and, you know, if they've got good balance sheets, they're well run, uh, they've got good key competitive advantages, they're going to have an ability to generate revenue into the future. So buy those types of assets. And the third one is, is make sure that you're protecting the buying power of your money over time. You absolutely want to have more growth assets in your portfolio because you want the revenue that that asset can produce to increase over a period of time, not reduce. You want to make sure that, you know, if you're buying any company or any portfolio, if it's generating a dollar today in earnings, you want it to have the ability to generate a dollar ten next year and a dollar twenty the year after and a dollar thirty the year after, so that you can protect the buying power of your money. Yeah, mm. love that. You know, you're seeing a range of uh, clients, high net wealth and ultra high net wealth. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> nice. Does it? Does the principles differ depending on how much money your clients have? And I guess coming down the income spectrum, you know, when you're thinking about Bryce and I, do those same principles apply? Do we apply it differently? Which bit of the spectrum are you guys on? Uh, <laughs> not enough. <laughs> Fu- we're, future, we're future high net wealth. <laughs> so, some of the, so certainly some of the key bits don't differ. You know, the, the, goal, you know, the goals themselves will differ and, you know, maybe the assets you've got access to differ. Often, unfortunately in life, the more money you've got, the more opportunity you've got to invest in private assets or, you know, fixed and real assets um, where, you know, the requirement to get in is bigger but the principles themselves don't actually differ. You know, that issue around making sure that you're buying into good quality assets over a period of time, you should continue to do that. And, you know, my counsel always is if your pot is small, use the same principles but invest in options that are suitable for that smaller pot of money. Don't cut your don't cut up your your pie too thin. Use good quality ETFs that have got good quality underlying assets and have a material amount of your, your pot of investments in those good quality assets. Mm. I think that's an important one, and a lot of people do ask us like, how if if I have ten or twenty thousand dollars, what is the split that I should be giving to some of those? Is it twenty different ETFs? Is it fifty percent in one, fifty percent in another? I know you can't probably answer that because it's a sort of a personal thing, but how would you think about that? Yeah, so, so I, I say if you've got 
a small amount. And I guess when I think about small amount, it's, you know, that kind of less than a hundred or less than $50,000 to invest. You really don't want more than two or three lines of investments, to be honest, because you end up cutting up the pie too thin. You end up having immaterial exposures that, you know, even if that immaterial exposure does a hundred percent, it actually doesn't change your life. Mm -hmm. So if you've got 50 grand and you've got 20 lines of investments, you know, simple maths tells you you've got about two and a half grand or two grand or whatever in every investment. Even if that thing shoots the lights out, two's turned into four. It actually hasn't changed your life. You want a greater exposure or a more material exposure to normal, good quality lines of investments and allow efficient market theory to do its job over over the medium to long term. I can see Bryce tapping away on his computer. I think he might be selling a few lines of his investments <laughs> right now. Mate, you've got more lines than me. I do have line. a few too many lines as well, Charlie. <laughs> but that but that just means that that just means that apart from some core material stuff you've got, fundamentally you're punting. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, and yes, you'll have an investment thesis and yes, you'll have a view on the particular individual stock and yeah, you're actually doing that more out of interest than out of actual investing. You're doing that yes, more yeah, out yeah. of, you know, wanting the to see whether it. or not, you know, it does well as opposed to the actual investment thesis, which is all about, especially if you've got 50 or 70 grand, is really just about a savings plan. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Charlie, we're in a uh, you know high inflation, rising interest rate environment at the moment. You can't escape it on the news and in across our lives. Uh, when it comes to advising your clients and constructing portfolios for your clients, are you approaching it differently in 2023 to say you were in 2021? Yeah, so the principles themselves haven't changed around asset quality, diversity, et cetera. But I do think the way that we're sort of allocating monies or deploying monies probably has changed a little bit. Noting we're always trying to deploy based on those objectives and target overall return for investors. And we do actually do that. We actually say to investors, hey, you know, over the medium to long term, we're trying to generate this type of return. And therefore, we're going to take kind of this much risk based upon everyone's kind of individual kind of risk aversions and risk profile, etc. I think now there's probably greater value in those interest rate sensitive assets. So we've probably done more into credit style investments, debt style investments, things that are sort of interest rate sensitive. Um, I think now uh, in some ways the kind of return that you're getting from a bunch of those credit style investments is probably asymmetric to the risk. Mm. So, you know, if you think about the fact that, you know, where the cash rate is or where the bank bill swap rate is, if you can generate a margin over the bank bill swap rate now of, you know, three or four or five or six percent, you're actually generating kind of nine or ten percent returns, which is reasonably compelling for investors, especially investors with, with bigger pots of money. And you're probably taking less risk than what you had to previously uh, to do that. Investment in some of that corporate credit, asset back credit, RMBS debt, um, you know, non-construction property debt where you know the sponsor uh, you know, I think the returns there are reasonably compelling. Um, we're, we're probably taking a view that we feel like rates will peak later this year at kind of 3.9. Um, maybe don't quote me on that. I think the consensus <laughs> is a little lower than that. We maybe think that it's probably a bit more hawkish than that, I think. Well, Phil um, Lowe didn't think rates would rise until 2024. So whatever you say, you're closer than him. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, we probably think rates will peak at the end of this year, to be honest. And, you know, um, certainly... Cameron, our sort of senior analyst, is sort of saying 3.9. I think consensus is 3.75. So I think when you you know when you're getting returns of four to six percent above bank bill swap rate, returns are uh, you know are fairly compelling. 
we went pretty hard last year and the year before at real assets. You know, we did a lot of industrial property stuff. We did a lot of infrastructure. Uh, you know, I would say that we've certainly backed off exposure to or new exposure. We're really happy with the exposures we've got, um, especially in that kind of industrial asset space where, you know, there's kind of that real rental power that exists because you've got leases which are subject to CPI increases. So you're kind of getting this kind of passing on of the cost of the um, of the increased cost. So clients are generating good yields, but the value in that sector has certainly come out because cap rates, um, cap rates kind of contracted really far or came down really far uh, and then you've got construction costs which have gone up so lots of the values come out so we're probably doing less of that than we were you know in, in 21 and and 22 we were we were still a major buyer of equities um, especially into the weakness um, sort of uh, mid last year we're doing a lot less in terms of new equity um, you know new equity purchases and in fact you know in our sort of 31 December investment reporting to clients we took a little bit off the table and we took a bit of value you know, we saw markets kind of climb 10 or 12% um, towards the sort of back end of the year. So we took that opportunity to just take a little bit more cash. We probably haven't been a major buyer of international equities for about a year and we're probably still not. We're probably waiting until we see what the next quarter earnings numbers look like. And mm. we're actually not doing heaps at the moment. There's a bit of private stuff around that we're doing, um, you know, where we've got new clients coming to us. We're taking small equity allocations, but we're sitting on our hands. We're, again, we're probably waiting a little bit to see what happens with the, with the earnings numbers and whether or not we see this kind of cost of capital flow through into earnings numbers and into balance sheets. The likelihood is some of that's probably priced in, but I feel like the risk of waiting and the risk of maybe getting it wrong is, is a better risk to take than kind of bundling all the money in and then feeling really sad that we weren't kind of a bit more disciplined about sort of being a bit more patient. We're probably staying away from REITs. Um, I'm not a big fan of the REITs anyway. I think they Interesting. I think they just basically act like, act like you know, investment banks really. But um, remember that the REITs generally just are making their money on an arbitrage between the asset and the, you know, the, the earnings and the cost of debt's going to go up. And, you know, if you, if you have a look at, at all the periods of great instability, the REITs got smashed. So, yeah. you know, if you go back to GFC, they all fell, you know, 50 or 60% or whatever it is. So, and that really is just the risk the risk of their ability to continue to generate that arbitrage over over a period of time. So we feel like if we're going to take property exposure, we'll go and buy real assets kind of thing. So the one thing that we are looking hard for is, is secondary PE or secondary private equity. Um, you know, there's probably an opportunity given the dislocation that occurred mm. sort of late last year. We're big fans of, of sort of private private equity and private markets. You know the you know the public market is kind of getting smaller. The private market is is kind of getting bigger. You know a lot of that sort of once upon a time the only way to get a liquidity event was to take your private stuff to public, and you know people were getting rewarded with really big multiples and what have you. That then kind of fell over as risk came off, et cetera, at the end of last year. So there's a number of really good quality managers out there that are probably available to everybody um, that are now going around and mopping up this stuff at kind of 40 and 50 cents in the dollar on um, what was previously available. So I think for small parts of big portfolios or small parts of any portfolio, there's an opportunity in that secondary private equity space. Yeah, right. So just to clarify, secondary private equity as opposed to 
primary private equity? Is that just like the smaller players? or oh, is that- it, I think the definition is probably a little fluid, but um, the definition of the way that we think about it is where you've had private equity opportunities that have either been um, – that have either had their kind of third or fourth round and are moving towards liquidity events but now can't ab- obtain that liquidity event because there's no – that there's kind of there's no depth in the market for them to be able to do it, or they've already gone to listing and they've seen a significant sort of re-rating of the value of the uh, you know of the asset um, at that at that point. So and so they then come off the boards. Yeah. So like Weber in the US and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah, yeah that's a good that's a that's a good example. There's a whole bunch of it, especially in Europe, where um, you know everybody was getting ready for listing, and then the kind of backside fell out of the market somewhat and now they're all sitting there going, well, we want our liquidity event, we want to give our early investors, you know, some of their money back. We're no longer going to get 100 cents in the dollar but 50 or 60 cents in the dollar is still probably 2x or 3x for a bunch of those mm. um, those those guys. Private equity managers can kind of um, see the, the, the long-term value in the thesis of whatever the underlying investment is or whatever the company might be. So they're, they're putting together, you know, syndicates and, and hordes of money to go out and kind of mop these things up and put por- portfolios together. Yeah, right. Fascinating. So, Charlie, a question we answered on our Get Started in, or tried to answer on our Get Started Investing show last week was, are savings accounts back? <laughs> yeah, I think... <laughs> yeah, look... Um, my view on cash, and it's probably not everyone's view on cash, is cash is just something that's waiting that's waiting there to be spent, you know, and cash is really just waiting to be invested into something more interesting or for you to go and buy a race car or something with it. Um, <laughs> Charlie loves race cars. If yeah. <laughs> um, look, I think now returns, feel, returns certainly feel a little more compelling. Now where, you know, your high interest bank account's generating three and a half or four or whatever it is and it's rewarding you for sticking money in there, the 4% kind of feels okay, you know. And, and I think there's kind of some economic debate or, you know, someone smarter than me is going to say, yeah, but the real return's actually negative because inflation's yeah, five. Yeah. That, that's kind of, you know, it's kind of right, but it's kind of for short term, it's kind of rubbish, rubbish, rubbish because the cost of bread and milk isn't actually going up that fast. So, you know, it's not the worst place if you're a bit nervous about markets and you're waiting for weakness, you know, open a high interest cash account, put your thousand bucks a month in there, allow it to accumulate until you've got a material amount and you feel good about markets or whatever the case yeah. case may be. We, from an investment management perspective, are probably holding more cash now than we have for a long time. You know, we're pretty cautious. We, you know, we feel like there are definitely headwinds in markets. We, you know, we do wonder whether we will sell, see somewhat of a sell-off, um, you know, come the next sort of reporting period. You know, we've probably already started to see that a little bit with the banks. You know, the, um, you know, the demand for credit and stuff has certainly slowed and, you know, the ability to get credit has slowed. So, and I think that might permeate through the market. So, it's not the worst time to have some cash around, to be honest, and have some powder dry. Mm. Mm. Yeah, the banks, like, you got to, I was about to say you got to feel sorry for Matt Common, but no, you don't have to feel sorry for him. <laughs> but he delivers Commonwealth Bank's record half yearly profit and his stock sells off 5%. Yeah. You'd have to you'd have to look at the market and be like, what more can I do for you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the reality is, is that the outlook for the next six or twelve yeah, months yeah. is pretty sombre. You've probably got this uh, reasonable sort of fiscal cliff that exists for you know fixed rate loans, etc. Because you've got to remember, there was a whole lot of people who bought you know a million dollar house at Kellyville three years ago, or, or, or sorry, bought a one point two million dollar house with a million dollars of debt in Kellyville. Um, you know, they fixed their rate; it was two and a half percent, which meant that they were paying. 20 Twenty-five thousand dollars a year, and you know they're earning a hundred, so they're they're taking home 
80 or whatever it is, 25 is going to the mortgage, um, the rest of it can pay for the HSV, the boat and the kid, you know, and, the, the, you know, the kids to have fun. Mm. That 25 out of old mate's 80 um, is suddenly going to become about 65 mm. yeah. and so suddenly you've got real stress associated with that. And that scenario is going to permeate, you know, in terms of people borrowing more money, uh, you know, consumption generally. It's a reasonably sombre 12 months, I think, you know, in terms of spending and in terms of um, what the banks are going to be able to lend out and what affordability looks like. Um, and, and, you know, and I think that's the reason for the sell-off and people taking a bit of profit and et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, Charlie, let's take a quick break there. And when we come back, we want to talk about uh, investing for kids. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event. So give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view. An endless field of wildflowers. Or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. We are speaking with Charlie Viola from Pitcher Partners as part of the Ask an Advisor series. But before we get back into it, a reminder that if you're interested in upskilling and learning more about valuation and how to apply it to your investing journey, then we currently have $100 off our Value Investor Program. It's an online course developed in conjunction with Owen Raskovich that will take you through everything that you need to know about valuation. So use code MATES at checkout for $100 off. The link will be in the show notes. But Charlie, uh, before we sort of sat down for this interview, you mentioned that you're now starting to see a lot of your clients' kids come to you with not the seven to 10 million assets under management, but a slightly more relatable amount <laughs> to, to Ren and I, you know, the, the 10,000, 20, 30, $40,000 sort of chunk of money and, and uh, looking for your advice on, on how to start deploying that. So let's, let's start with what are some of the common questions that they are asking you? Yes, it's a really common occurrence now and I think as I get older, my clients get older. So, yes. <laughs> um, you know, and they're, they're sort, of coming, sort of coming to me and saying, you know, my son and daughter has um, finished uni, has started working full time, they're well educated like everybody is these days, um, you know, mid-20s or whatever and has some cash. You know, what, what should they do with it? So, and I'll be honest, you know, I've actually really grappled with this because it's actually a really hard question to answer because, you know, how risk adverse are they? How sad will they be if, you know, the value falls? You know, that 10 mm. or 20 or 30 or 50 grand is all the money they've got in yeah. the world. They don't often see how much money mum and dad have got. Mm. They assume it because they live in a big house in Mossman and, you know, went to a fancy school and had their education paid for. But that 50 grand is still the most important thing to them in, in their life. So, um, you know, what happens if they change their mind at, at some at some point? So I really grapple with this and it's actually a really difficult question to answer. The best way to kind of deal with monies like that is actually 
with that in mind, with the, with the fact that life in your 20s is reasonably fluid and you will actually change your mind. So the way I approach it and what I tell everybody is that if you've got 20 or 30 or 40 grand to invest and you think that you've got a medium term or, or medium to long term because, you know, you're not looking to buy a house and, you know, you want to continue to work and, and rent and, you know, maybe go overseas or whatever it is, my view has tended to be construct your portfolio but put 50% of the money in and then on a monthly basis for the next six or 12 months um, put the rest of it in on a, on a monthly basis. And then whatever it is that you're saving, you know, $1,000 a month out of your salary or $1,500 a month out of your salary or $500, whatever, put that in and put that in as well. And the reason for doing that and leave the other half in cash and then put it in over the, you know, the, the six or 12 months. And the reason for doing that is because it just then gives you the opportunity. If you do change your mind, then you've only deployed half of it and you can, you can change tact. If markets fall, you're only going to be half as sad, but then you've got the ability to kind of do the dollar cost averaging thing over a, over a period of time. And it just allows you to kind of learn on the journey without all of the anxiety of making all of the investment at once. And it also allows you then to kind of at least see what's kind of going on with your portfolio, what's driving it, you know, whether you like the mix of assets, whether you don't, and make small adjustments along the way. So, yeah, like I said, really simple, put half of it in, put the other half in, you know, in, in over six or 12 months in even amounts and just stick to the strategy of actually doing that because, it, again, it just That's the hard that, part. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> just having the discipline to stick to it. And, and then when you think about the pie chart and what's in there, uh, what are some of the key asset classes and, you know, obviously we're not doing secondary PE as uh, tw- <laughs> mid-20, well, maybe you are. That it must be, be awesome. nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, what, how, how are you constructing that pie chart? Yeah, so, so again, you go back to the principles, right? So go back to the principles of don't cut up your pie too thin. Um, make sure you're using good quality assets. Keep your costs reasonably low. You don't want too many lines. You'll end up with transaction costs. So I'm of the view that if you've got 20 or 30 or 40 grand and you're putting in 20 of your 40 up front and then you're putting in, you know, three grand a month or two grand a month or whatever it is to make up the difference over a period of time by, you know, large cap, defensive, good quality ETFs, for a good portion of it, uh, which covers domestic equities uh, and international equities and allow efficient market theory to take over over time and let time be the determinant for the outcome over a period. Close your eyes a little bit to the volatility and just stick to the plan of sticking the money in um, every month. But broad-based, large cap, you know, go and buy STW or VAS or go and buy IOO or VTS, you know, the, 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 the large cap, good quality um, things. I don't think you have to try and pick the winners. I don't think you've got to try and go and punt individual stocks because you'll get it wrong and it'll create anxiety. And it's not the purpose of the money. The purpose of the money is that savings plan piece, mm. you know, over a, over a period. I think a reasonable mix between domestic and international um, equities makes absolute sense um, and they you know and if you want a, you know a small alternatives bent make that the third line but make it a smaller line than the other two but again it doesn't need to be more than two or three lines it just doesn't you don't need to go and try and buy a basket of stocks and beat the index because what you're actually trying to do is create a disciplined savings plan over time well I have a couple of mates who um, 
you know, they were starting theirs and they were fixated on the idea of the high dividend yield ETFs and thought that that's one way to sort of fast track the process of building wealth into the portfolio. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, if you actually have a look at those high yield uh, ETFs, they've been a disaster. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, what are they? Um, VHY, WiMAX, they've, they've been awful versus market. Um, yeah. Remembering that if you just went out and bought the ASX 200, the yield's like four and a half percent. That's pretty. That's pretty high yield as it is, right? Yeah. Um, just go and buy normal things. Don't try and outsmart the market. Don't try and be smarter than everybody else. Just buy that good quality stuff. Because remembering all that you know, those high yield or those high yielding dividends do is go and find companies that pay out more than 100% or very close to 100% of their earnings, which actually compromises the future growth over a period of time. Mm. So. Like I just I, I really take the kind of the, the KISS principle on this stuff. Keep it as simple as possible and then at least then you know that if we're starting to see greater strength in the economy and markets go up, you're going to benefit from that. And if we do see periods of weakness, well, you're buying in every month anyway, so you're getting the advantage of the dollar cost averaging. Now, can I uh, uh, change a variable in there? The, the scenario we've been talking about is people that aren't talking about buying a house in the shorter term, but I assume a lot of mid late 20s people are looking at the housing market at the moment and saying this might become an opportunity what if one of these clients kids came and said i've got this money i've been saving it up i want to know what to do with it i would if there's an opportunity in the next couple of years would love to buy a house yeah and it's actually really difficult right so so i think that anytime you introduce risk to the portfolio you need to have a a three-year time horizon i think anything less than anything less than that you end up possibly having to change your objectives because, you know, you're needing to wait until things recover or you're taking more risk than what you otherwise wanted to, you know, you otherwise wanted to take, to be honest. So I think anyone who has an objective of buying a house within the next kind of 12 or 18 months, I think we're back to the cash accounts, yeah. to be honest, and getting sort of 3 or 4% or seeking out credit-style investments um, where you're not going to see greater kind of, you know, volatility in terms of pricing. I think where you can sort of push it out more than two or three years, you can absolutely do the dollar cost averaging because you're going to kind of get a little bit protected by, and it probably probably cements the point even further about kind of blending, like buying your money in over a period of time and blending it in over time so that, you know, if the house comes up, you can kind of change tact um, or you're kind of getting that kind of blended in over a, uh, over a period. So, again, come back to what the objectives, you know, those, those key principles that we talked about early. What's the objective of this money? If the objective is to never see it change in value, then don't put it at risk because, you know, we, I think we've all seen those tables that say that, you know, equities have gone down for a one-year investment, you know, on 25% of occasions yeah. but over a five-year period, like virtually never, right? Yeah. So, you know, you have to keep that principle in mind when you're making investments. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Where should I put my emergency account? <laughs> is that the one you're hiding from your wife? It's <laughs> not enough in there to hide. So, Charlie, one more question on kids. There's a lot of people in the Equimates community, Bryce excluded at this point, who are having kids, have young kids um, or are thinking about it and, you know, they've, they didn't learn about investing growing up but they've been listening to Equity Mates and get started investing and they're hooked and they want to set their kids up. Um, do you have younger clients that come to you and ask similar questions? 
We actually probably have a lot of people doing it for grandkids, actually. So oh. where they're, you know, and I think once upon a time there were probably things like education funds which were effectively, you know, sort of tax-paid investment mm. bonds, et cetera, but they're really expensive and a bit ugly and the investment options aren't, aren't great. Again, I have a really simplistic view on this, you know, uh, you know, if you wanted to put money in for kids or grandkids and you really just wanted to, you know, sort of stick all the money they get for birthdays and Christmases or whatever in there or you wanted to put, you know, 300 bucks a, a month or whatever, just go and buy a really simple ETF and just allow it to continue to accumulate or go and put it in a broad-based kind of managed fund um, where, you know, you just allow it to accumulate over a period of time and just keep the discipline up of, you know, the, almost the set and forget and just, uh, again, allow time to be that determinant. I made the comment before that, you know, if over in one year you see volatility, over five you've only ever seen positive returns and over ten you see really good returns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And remembering if you're investing for a three-year-old, you really don't want them to have the money until they're 18. You've got... 18 years of efficient market theory or 15 years of efficient market theory. Maybe 25 even. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess uh, the, the second part of this question that uh, we often hear is um, how, because, you know, let's say uh, maybe for some of your clients like setting up a trust is more no, available it, but... There's, you just don't need the level of complexity around that. You can open a broker account with a, with a designation for the child. So okay. just mum or dad does it. Um, it ends up being taxed at mum or dad's um, rates. There's not much you can do about that, but it doesn't wonderfully it doesn't wonderfully matter. Um, or open a managed fund. You know, just get a, any managed fund provider. You know, and just do it via just do it via the product with the child as the designation. And then with the child as the designation, you can kind of hand them that money when the statement comes through. Their their name is in the designation, so it does feel like it's for them oh, yeah. it's just you as the parent have got control you really don't need to go to the complexity of setting up a you know a family trust for the purposes of having 50 grand in it over 10 years kind of thing because the costs will kill you ren we have reached the end of uh, the episode but one of my biggest takeaways from this is we've got a one of the most successful top rated advisors sitting here in the studio and the key message is just keep it simple mm. and let time do the rest yeah, so yeah, yeah. charlie i think some great messages out of today it can often feel like once you you know, that there's more to it and that it doesn't need to be as complicated as people think it is. I, I think the we think about investing and we think about there's like a real gap between this ultra high net wealth mm. and what we can do. But if Charlie's advising them to buy a couple of uh, you know broad based <laughs> ETFs, only have a few lines on your portfolio on your broker, yeah. it's something we can all do. Exactly. Just exactly. Sell a few of our other lines now. You've got to sell a lot of lines. <laughs> well, Charlie, thank you so so much for uh, for joining us. If you've enjoyed uh, today's episode with Charlie, we will continue our Ask an Advisor series throughout 2023. Keep an eye on the Facebook group as we reach out for questions for, for those episodes. But Charlie, as always, thank you so much for your time. We, we love it when you come on and our community do as well. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Thanks Charlie. As always. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. 
The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.